Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. If you don't know who I am, my name is Thad Yessa. I'm one of the pastors here at West Hills. Our lead pastor, Will Duvall, is on vacation and ministering at another church this morning, and he has asked me to fill in for him, and I am so happy to open God's word with you this morning. You can be turning to Acts chapter 14 in your Bibles this morning. If you do not have a Bible, that's okay. We'll put the text on the screen, but we'd also love to gift a Bible to you. We have extra Bibles just for those who don't have one. If you need one of those, just stop by the info bar and we will give that to you freely so that you can have a copy of the scriptures. As a little introduction, as a reminder of where we are in our study of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 14 is the second half of what we call Paul's first missionary journey, which starts in Acts 13. And as we learned last week and saw last week, that as the gospel is being proclaimed, that there is a resistance to it, that Paul and Barnabas, as they've been sent out by the church of Antioch to go and proclaim the message to the Gentiles that they face opposition and hardship, and in fact, they are kicked out of every city they go to. They are driven out. And we will see this week that, again, as every city they go to, they are driven out, that this chapter can can seem a little heavy at times, that it isn't just full of joyfulness, but we'll see that there is suffering and hardship. But a theme to kind of trace through both of those chapters is that gospel demands, demands an enduring gospel because there are hardships that come. And in this, we'll see that without a true understanding of the gospel, that proclaiming the message of Christ will not be as sweet. Perhaps you're familiar with the phrase false gospels, either things that are added to the gospel message of Jesus that add something and say, hey, you can believe in Jesus, but you have to do this in order to receive the riches of Christ. Or perhaps you're more familiar with the prosperity gospel, that God's desire is for us to acquire acquire as much creature comfort as possible because that's God's design for us. That we should always be successful and prosper and we will never face bad times. And sometimes we can laugh at even the idea of it because it's so anti-gospel that it says if there's money in the bank, cars in the garage, boats on the lake, that means that God loves you more. But one of the challenges with the prosperity gospel that I want to raise as well as other false gospels is there is no category for suffering. That when hardships and trials arise... There seems to be no understanding of what to do. And I think even us as believers are at times tempted to believe a false gospel. That when we experience suffering, how do we respond to it? 
Do we say, what did I do wrong? Is God punishing me? Is there some sort of sin in my life that I just don't know about? Instead, what I want to propose is that suffering is used by God to advance his kingdom. Instead, a better question for us to ask is, am I seeing this suffering through the lens of Jesus? Jesus said to his disciples that in this world there would be suffering. That he didn't sugarcoat that there would be hardships, trials, hostility. But we need to remember that although Jesus told this to his disciples, his followers, and he tells that to us, that Jesus also willingly chose to step into our world, that he has not called us to something that he himself was not willing to suffer or even go one step further and suffer greater and die on the cross for our behalf. We can be tempted at times to view God as the guy upstairs who we really like when things are going our way. But as soon as something bad happens, our response is usually anger towards God or anxiety. That we allow our suffering to cloud our judgment about what it is we actually believe about God. To jump a little bit ahead in our text this morning, I'm going to read for us verses 21 and 22 of Acts chapter 14. It says this, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's where the title of our sermon this morning comes from, Through Many Tribulations, which as I've already warned you, might not sound like the most exciting thing, but this is what God has put in his word. And the question we will ask as we work our way through this text is, what should the church expect when following Jesus? So I'll ask that you stand out of respect for the reading of God's word as you are able. Uh, this passage moves kind of in four movements. We will read the first seven verses to start. And as I mentioned, the text will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. The word of God says, Now... At Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. And so they remained a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, 
they learned of it and fled Lystra and Derbe and cities of Lyconia and the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray and ask for the Spirit's help this morning. Our Father, we come to you and we ask for your help this morning. That as we look at this text that may be hard for us to read of suffering and hardships, we pray that you would move any distractions from our mind, that things going on in the outside world would not creep in, but instead we can focus on you and how you have chosen to work throughout history to make your name great among the nations. Father, we pray that you would give us understanding in the text this morning, and that you would be glorified and honored by all that is done. We pray this in your Son's holy and precious and wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. So what should the church expect when following Jesus? The first thing we'll see is hostility. So Paul and Barnabas here are doing what they usually do and what they did in the past chapters, that they are starting in a new city by going to the synagogue to preach the gospel of Jesus. And I think there's a reason that they go to synagogues first. One, because they knew that there would be people there that they could preach to instead of an empty place for them. And number two, because the people were at least theistic that they believed in at least a concept of God, if not Yahweh of the Old Testament. And Paul and Barnabas would come in and say, all the writings that you read of Yahweh and the scriptures, we have come to tell you that it has been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. And so they begin to preach the gospel, even though in the very last time they had gone to the synagogue, preached the gospel, and were driven out, that here they go to a new city and are not hindered in proclaiming the message that they did not lose hearts, even though they were just kicked out of the city. And I think it's important to note how it is that they sought to minister in the city. That Paul and Barnabas' ministry was one of speaking, preaching, proclaiming the gospel that they got up and they told of the good news of Jesus. It also says that as they did this, they bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders done by their hands. And I categorize that as faithful presence. Now, there can be a temptation for us to have faithful presence at the expense of faithful proclamation, meaning that we desire to live in a way that our character is good, our speech is kind, we do good deeds with our hands, but the mission of God does not march forward without speaking, that yes, we should desire to be the best employees and best parents and best neighbors and best co-workers and best students that we can be, but we cannot forget that the gospel message isn't one to just be lived out, but one that is meant to be proclaimed to people, be spoken to people. 
Because in our good deeds, people aren't going to come to know that Jesus Christ has died and has risen on their behalf. That my family has recently moved into a new house that we love, and my neighbor across the street is just the kindest person there is. That he's seen me working in my yard, and he's brought over tool after tool and come and given me advice how to do it. That he is showing kindness to me, but that kindness doesn't communicate anything deeper than he's just being kind. So I want to make sure you, you hear me correctly that I am saying that it is important, that we should be kind, we should be good neighbors, that we should care about how people think about us, that they're like, oh man, that person is so kind, caring, compassionate, that person is so hopeful, but that we capitalize on it and use those as opportunities to proclaim the gospel to people. Because Paul and Barnabas could have been tempted to come to this new city and just perform miracles and been kind and gracious and hopefully not experience the same suffering that they did, but they come in proclaiming the gospel first and then they go and do the good deeds. And so there were those in the city as they begin their proclamation of the gospel who believed and then there were those who didn't. And it caused great hostility and a division among the people there. And I think the reason for it is that the gospel message, it isn't a message of something to do. That it's not do these religious acts. It's not about checking off boxes. It's about the person who died and rose again. And the question is, do we believe that or do we disbelieve that? To understand the real message of Jesus is to recognize that there is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. That you are either all the way in or you are all the way out. That you can't walk the line of living in this world but not of this world. That you either believe Jesus or you don't believe in Jesus. And the speaking of Paul and Barnabas is they are asking the people at the synagogue, what will you do with the person of Jesus? They are calling them to believe or reject the gospel. We read in verses 2 and 3, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, that just as they had in the last time they start experience this hostility, this pushback to the gospel message. And what we can draw from this is that resistance has a way of making us resilient for the cause of Christ. That as they are being pushed back, as the Jews are coming in and it says they are poisoning minds, so probably saying, don't believe this, this is a bunch of garbage. Don't listen to them, they're crazy. There was no person called Jesus, he died on a cross and he didn't rise again. That Paul and Barnabas amidst much hostility counted the cost and remained resilient in their mission for proclaiming the gospel that they weren't surprised that this happened 
Because I said they've continued the pattern that they had set in the last chapter on the first set of their missionary journey. And this is the B side of that journey to go to the synagogue, preach Christ crucified and resurrected, and most likely be persecuted and kicked out of the city. That the hostility we saw last week is the same kind of hostility we see this week. But even though there was great hostility, they refused to let anything compromise their message or mission. That instead of changing the gospel message to make it less offensive to them, that they stood their grounds preaching Christ. That they weren't going to let anything destroy distract them from fulfilling the mission of God. Which I don't know if you're anything like me, kind of sounds like the opposite, that when opposition comes in front, we're tempted to turn the other way, or when opposition arises, when we're sharing the gospel or trying to live holy lives in this world, that we can be tempted to let the first sign of opposition or hostility deplete us to be discouraged by it, to be like, man, it's really hard sometimes to stand up for Jesus. But here in this passage, we see that they remained, that they pushed on, that they remained resilient and they persisted. And I think it's because they recall the words of Jesus in John 15, 19 that says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That they understood that being a faithful follower of Jesus meant at times that people will not receive you with joyful, arms open reception. That sometimes they will hate the message and in turn hate the messenger. And Jesus didn't trick anyone into the Christian life when he called his disciples. He let them know what it was going to be like, what they were going to face. And Jesus' disciples, back when he called them, and as he calls us today, we have to count the cost to follow Jesus. Because I stand here today to tell you what Jesus says, that there is going to be hostility and there is going to be division. And the gospel by its nature brings division. We see in verse 4 that, but the people of the city were divided. That some sided with the Jews and others sided with the apostles. That the gospel by its nature is a dividing message. So you've already said that you either believe the message that you are a sinner in need of a savior or you reject the gospel message and you spend eternity separated from God. And it's interesting that this kind of opposition they face is right after it says they remained for a long time speaking boldly Christ who bore witness to the words of his grace. So they're speaking a message of grace, a message of the grace and kindness and mercy of God. They're doing all these signs and wonders that it's after they do those things that that's when this real division starts that they're going to drive them out of the city. And sometimes I wonder when we read something like this, we can look at our own lives and ask the question, why are we surprised? Or why is our life shaken 
when the world is hostile towards the gospel or Christians or Jesus. That we need to have correct expectations of what it is that Jesus calls the church to expect when following after him. That yes, the reality is it does involve hostility. And how is it that we respond to such hostility, such hardship, such division? It says in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, and yet do it with gentleness and respect that here you have on display what it looks like to live, to be a faithful presence and have faithful proclamation that you live your lives in a way that causes a world that is hateful towards the gospel to ask questions of, why is it that you believe this? Why do you act this way? Why do you have hope when the world seems like a really crazy, unpredictable place? that you live in a way that causes people to ask questions and then you faithfully proclaim it's because of Jesus and what he has done for me on the cross and what the gospel means for me today. And you do it with gentleness and respect. That being in an environment of hostility and division requires endurance and wisdom. That if our view of God isn't big enough or the gospel isn't good enough, we are going to find ourselves disheartened and disenchanted with Jesus. But we also see that not only will we face hostility in this world while following Jesus, we'll also see misunderstanding. This is the second movement of the chapter starting in verse number 8. It says, now at Lystra, there was a man who was sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. And he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul look, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice to stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying, In Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard it, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, and yet he did not leave them, leave himself without witnesses. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. 
even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices that we see that following after Jesus, the church should expect misunderstanding. And it's important to understand the context in which this is taking place and that at the time in this particular city, there was this legend or myth going on that the gods would come down from Mount Olympus and they would disguise themselves as humans, mere mortals, and they'd come into these towns and they would see who would show them hospitality, who would show them kindness, and those people who would show them kindness, they would receive blessing, their crops would prosper, there would be rains, there would be fertility, there would be blessings, but the legend goes that there were those in the city who did not show hospitality to Zeus and Hermes as they came in these man-like forms, and as a result, they destroyed the homes. Tornadoes come and fires burst out and the crops dried up. And so after witnessing the miracle of a lame man who has never walked, being able to walk by Paul and Barnabas, the town is very quick to rejoice and celebrate and make sure that they are showing the best hospitality to Paul and Barnabas. And I'm sure this was the best reception that Paul and Barnabas ever experienced as they come and they celebrate and throw a party and bring sacrifices and garlands and they're joyful that they're there. But what we see is Paul and Barnabas tear their clothes at even the thought of being worshipped because they had such a high view of God and the gospel message that they are proclaiming. That in fact, they were declaring, stop worshiping false gods. Instead, worship the one true God. They say in verse 15, we are also men of like nature with you and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. That Paul's audience is not a Jewish audience, but a pagan one. And he's trying to correct their theology that all these good things that they think are given to them through the false worship of these idols, fruitful harvest, rain, etc., are in fact common graces given by the one true God, the creator of all things, who offers them something better than just a good harvest. And yet, they misunderstand them. At the mere thought of being worshipped, Paul and Barnabas are brought to tears because they know that these people are so led astray. That they are trying to tell them, do not trust in us because we will let you down. Do not trust in these statues because they will let you down. Do not trust in life of chance because you'll always be let down, but trust in the God of the universe who will never let you down. And they preach the gospel message to them. And yet, they misunderstand that Paul, who probably was the best preacher of all time, telling them about the gospel and about Jesus and all that he did, 
says that in verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. That as they proclaim the gospel message, there is a misunderstanding. Then I'm assuming that these pagan individuals heard it and said, great, another God we can add to our shelf that we can worship. I wonder if you're familiar with the experience of sharing the gospel with someone and their response being, I don't understand, that's too good to be true, that may be good for you, but it's not for me. That at times we can become so easily disheartened or impatient, intolerant, apathetic when someone responds with a misunderstanding to our gospel message. That perhaps we forget at times our own struggles, our own idol works when trying to tell other people about their idol worship. That I don't know if your story is anything like mine, but I heard the gospel over and over and over again before I actually believed. That it took continual repetition of it. That Paul and Barnabas response to this misunderstanding of the gospel was to cry, to tear their clothes, and to preach the gospel again. That they could have been tempted to be like, you know, it's just, they're not going to get it, and we're just going to move on with someone whose heart is softer than theirs. But Paul and Barnabas have an urgency to communicate the truth, but also a spirit of compassion, that they don't fall into pity or anger, but instead they see these individuals who are engaging in false worship as souls that are going to spend eternity in one of two places, either with God in relationship with him in heaven or eternally separated from God, experiencing eternal punishment, that they are so distraught that these people aren't believing the gospel that it brings them to tears. And I think what we need to draw from this, one, is to not lose heart in sharing the gospel. That yes, although we should expect there to be misunderstandings when we share the gospel with people, that we should not forget our own stories, that it took time for that gospel to plant itself deep in our heart as God softened the soil to the truth and that one day we believe the good news that Jesus truly is better than anything this world has to offer. But also, how do we respond when someone misunderstands or rejects the gospel? Do we just cast them aside and say, it's too much of a hassle? Or do we view them as fellow image bearers who have souls that we desire to see them come to know a saving relationship with Jesus? And so as they face this misunderstanding, we transition to our third movement in the story, which may be the hardest one to hear, that what we should expect as a church when following Jesus is suffering, which I'm sure just fills you with joy as I say that. 
In verse 19 and 20, it says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowd, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. I find these verses, some of the most amazing verses and astonishing verses in this chapter that these Jews were reading about have traveled 100 miles and 50 miles from the two different cities. And this time they're coming not to poison mines as we read in Iconium, not to attempt a persecution, but to kill Paul. That we don't plan to go on trips or vacation and then something comes up and be like, ah, you know what, we'll just turn back around. We've been in the car for 10 hours, but we'll just go back home. It's okay. They are going to finish what they started here. That the level of hate and jealousy we read here from these Jews is similar to what we read about Jesus when he was crucified. That he was despised, rejected, taken outside the city and killed, that those Jews that killed Jesus were on a mission that they were going to see accomplished. Similarly, these Jews here are not going to stop until they kill Paul. Now in this, as we've already read, that Paul isn't dead, but many commentators point to this text and say this is the third miraculous resurrection in the scriptures. The first being Lazarus, the second being Jesus, and here the third being the apostle Paul. Now, regardless of whether or not Paul was actually dead or as he seemed to be dead, he was most likely mangled and disfigured in a way that they thought for sure they were dead. That these people had the kind of attitude of a middle school boy playing dodgeball that he is going to throw the ball as hard as he can at the youth leaders to make sure they know who is in charge. That these people are coming and they're not throwing softballs out there. That they are intending to kill Paul. And yet we see God miraculously spare Paul's life for the purpose of the gospel message and Paul's ministry to continue further. And God doesn't always do this. We read earlier in the book of Acts this year of Stephen, who was also stoned, whose life was not not spared. And so I we read this and we're like, man, Paul suffered so greatly. And yet even in the midst of suffering, we see God work and we see that God surrounds his people with his people. That it could have been very easy for those who believe the gospel message that Paul preached, that as they see Paul stoned, dragged out of the city and left for dead, to scurry and flee and hide for fear that they were going to be next to be stoned and killed. 
And yet what we see in this text is the followers of Jesus surround Paul. And I imagine they probably walk probably slowly up to his body, and it is a very gruesome sight as they remove stones from Paul's body, and they see the blood and the flesh, and they see miraculously that he's alive. And they slowly bandage his wounds together, giving him some water to drink. That God provides and surrounds his people with his people. That one of the aspects of the gospel is that it brings us into community with other believers. Oftentimes we associate that with the church gathering together. That when one of us suffers all of us suffer together, that we care about the needs of other people, that God does this. He brings his people to help Paul along. But what might be almost just as miraculous as Paul not being killed or being raised from the dead is as they bandage Paul up, says in the text that as they gather about him, verse 20, he rose up, and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. We see that Paul and Barnabas don't fear pain or further suffering from fulfilling the mission. And we have to ask ourselves is what is the motivation that Paul has in his life to be killed? threatened to be killed, to be persecuted, to be stoned, to be cast out of city after city, what is it that drives this guy to keep going forward and proclaiming the gospel? And I think it's that the message of the gospel is so hope-filled and so glory-filled that someone who was stoned and thought to be dead would get up, hobble 50 miles to the next town just to share that same exact gospel that Paul thought Jesus was just too great and glorious to stop telling people about him. Now, we could be tempted when we read a text like this to say, man, Paul was able to be stoned, and then the next day after facing such hardship, suffering, persecution, violence, to go right back to preaching the gospel, but yet... I won't even go across the street to talk to my neighbor. And I'll just tell you, I think that is a very shallow motivation here for Paul continuing on. That shame is not a great motivator and it actually won't get you very far in life. But instead, I think what we need to consider is Paul's real motivation, which isn't shame. Instead, it's Paul's view of how great the gospel is how big our God is, his love of Jesus, and his compassion for fellow image bearers. Think about it. Paul gets up, goes to the same city that he just went to, and says, hey guys, I know you just tried to kill me, but Jesus is really just that good. Before he heads 50 miles to the next town. That Paul had such great views of the gospel that he remembered that he was a sinner far from God 
In fact, he was a sinner that was persecuting the people of God and that God intervened, interjected himself into Paul's life to say, Paul, I'm offering you something so much better you probably won't even fully understanding it. I'm offering you a relationship with God. I'm offering you eternal life. I'm offering you the riches of the glories of heaven. That Paul viewed the gospel as just too good of news to just stop. That he said, hey, I can't stop and I won't stop declaring how great Jesus is and the love that he showed me by dying on the cross for my sins. And that God is so great and so powerful that he can use this kind of suffering to continue to advance his message. Because Paul goes and he continues sharing the gospel with Barnabas. Imagine with me if we had that same kind of view of the gospel and of Jesus and of God and fellow image bearers. What that would do for our gospel proclamation. That when we come up into hardships, we're like, that's okay, Jesus is better. That when someone rejects the gospel, say, that's okay, I know you need Jesus and I'm not going to stop sharing him with you. That, hey, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that these are just light and momentary afflictions. That Paul also says later on in his epistles that I bear the marks of the gospel on my body. That sometimes we imagine Paul as kind of an older guy proclaiming the gospel message, but I imagine Paul showed much disfigurement, much scarring, much bruising from all his beating and persecutions and stoning that he faced. And he said, that's okay. Jesus is better. This is just for a short time. That greater than the weight of the world that opposes the gospel, so much greater is the weight of glory that we will face when we see Jesus in heaven. That we will say, you know what? Time on this earth, it's great. But time with Jesus will be even better. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. That even though the church should experience, should expect hostility, division, misunderstanding, and suffering, it should not lose hope because Jesus is really that good to forsake the mission of God. That we should remember what I said at the beginning, that gospel advancement demands an enduring gospel, and sometimes enduring the gospel means enduring suffering. Throughout church history, if we had time, we could look at it and see all of those faithful followers of Christ who suffered on behalf of Christ. One of perhaps the more famous ones is John Huss who was a faithful gospel preacher who was burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church for preaching Christ crucified and resurrected. And yet it's said as he was being burned at the stake, he was heard singing hymns of the goodness of God. That we too might have that kind of faith, that our gospel would be so durable that we would not let sufferings or hardships sway us from telling people the message of Jesus. Now I know 
these things that I'm telling you are not like the most exciting that, hey, there's going to be hostility and misunderstanding and suffering, but I have intentionally left out my favorite part of this chapter. And I think the theme that's traced through for us to bring us this kind of hope, and that's the church should expect when following Jesus, gospel advancement. We finish out the chapter starting in verse number 21, that when they had preached the gospel in that city, so Derby, as Paul's left, and had made many disciples, and they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. That as Paul and Barnabas finish in Derby. It says that they go back and trace their way through the cities to get back to Antioch. And it says that they went and as they are going, they are encouraging the souls of the disciples in verse 22 to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That as they're going back, to those who have believed the message of the gospel, they're coming to encourage them to say, hey, listen, the gospel is that great. And when you face hardships and sufferings and misunderstandings, do not lose hope because Jesus really is that good. That Christ is enough for us. That they're going back to encourage them because they know that hostility and suffering is coming. But as they go back and they get back to Antioch, the place where they were sent out to start this first missionary journey, they don't get back to the church and say, guys, it was awful. They kicked us out of every city. Not everyone believed the gospel. They stoned us. They persecuted us. They were mean to us. And all we wanted to do was tell them about the grace of Jesus. And said, as they come to the city into the church, they declare all that God had done for them, that there was no grumbling or complaining about how they were treated. Instead, they focused on the work that God was doing in unbelieving hearts in them and through them. Their one and only focus was on God and his mission. That they were painting this view for us today that God is so great and so powerful that even in the most unlikely of circumstances of suffering, persecution, stoning, that God will still work to carry out his gospel message to see those who are far from God become children of God. That in each of these cities that we even read today, as unkind as the people were, that there were still people who believed the gospel that God worked in spite of the suffering that Paul and Barnabas experienced. 
that they were coming to say, listen, it is amazing what God is doing. That the gospel message does not stop even when our lives pass away. That the gospel message does not stop being proclaimed even when we suffer. That the gospel message does not stop even when at times we might experience our own doubts. That the gospel of Jesus will continue until souls are saved and it reaches the ends of the earth. And that is what Paul and Barnabas are encouraging the church and Antioch and us today is that God is on a mission to see souls saved. And he's going to do that regardless of the circumstances or experience that we face. That Paul and Barnabas come, instead of focusing on all the bad, they say, man, isn't Jesus so good? Isn't he so great and so wonderful that even amidst the sufferings they face, they did not let it cool their affections towards Christ? They said, it is all worth it to make Jesus' name great among the earth. 